This is an ABC podcast. Welcome to Radio National Counterpoint. I'm Amanda Vanstone. Thanks for joining me. Some of the hype you hear about Chinese investment in Australia is just that, hype. We need big injections of capital in lots of areas, including agriculture. But even with good partners, we have to put our security first. There are plenty of Chinese cooperating on research projects in Australian universities that relate to high-tech defence science. And if you add it all up, what picture do you see? Somebody needs to check on what the sum of the parts becomes. On the subject of China, you'll have heard criticism of their aid in the Pacific, but perhaps we need to check on ourselves and what we're doing with New Zealand. And speaking of Australia and New Zealand, imagine having to describe the shape we see on a map to someone who'd never seen it. Describing shapes can be more complicated than we imagine, unless you use metaphors as scientists do. And the favourite metaphorical library of shapes is pasta. But first, to immigration. We started out as colonies, but we've become one of the most successful immigration countries in the world. Us, the United States and Canada, are the big three. The fact is, unless you're a full-blood Indigenous Australian, you've got migrant blood in your veins. Immigration defines us, so we better keep in touch with how we all think about it. Immigration's much in the news lately. The question is whether we've got too many people. Too many people to build the economy or too many people in terms of the infrastructure we have available and too many people going to too few cities. To talk about just that, I'm joined by Jeremy Samet from the Centre for Independent Studies. They've recently released a report, Australian Attitudes to Immigration, Coming Apart or Common Ground? What do you think? Get it in your mind just before we hear what Jeremy has to say. Jeremy Samet, welcome back to Counterpoint. Thank you, Amanda. Well, there is quite a bit of common ground, isn't there? There is. There has been a lot of recent polling that has shown that Australians' attitudes to immigration are hardening. But one of the assumptions that's underpinned that is that elite and ordinary Australians, to use those terms, have very different attitudes to immigration. And I think a lot of that is based on what we've seen in the US over President Trump's election when the East Coast and West Coast voted very differently and felt very differently about immigration compared to people who lived in the Midwest. And we also saw that in the UK over Brexit, where there was a clear divide between North and Southern England. Look, we decided to test those assumptions by doing some polling. What we did was we polled the top 10% of metropolitan postcodes by income and education and the bottom 10%, and we asked them a series of questions about immigration. Mm-hmm. What we found, really quite surprisingly, is that attitudes to immigration were not polarised and they were actually more similar than different. We found that in both rich and poor suburbs, there was majority support for cutting the immigration intake until infrastructure catches up with demand. Mm-hmm. We also found there was majority support for requiring migrants to learn English and about Australian values to promote 
integration. And even more surprisingly, we found there was common ground and majority support for maintaining strong border protection policies no matter who wins the next election. That's interesting, isn't it? For all we hear in certain parts of the media, the bottom line is when you go to just about any poll, Australians do think that we should decide who comes here and the circumstances under which they come. I think that is one of the implications you can definitely draw from this. We didn't find any evidence that we've got that sort of toxic social polarisation along class or geographic lines. I think what we've also uncovered is the fact that often in the immigration debate, people who talk about these questions of congestion or social cohesion are seen as expressing fringe views or worse, or if politicians talk about them, they're accused of trying to appeal to the so-called One Nation voters. But what we've found is that these attitudes are actually mainstream public opinion and they are shared across the social spectrum of metropolitan residents. Mm. When I was reading the article, it occurred to me what opportunities there are for people to, if you like, misrepresent it, depending on how you present the figures. Well, I think you quite rightly say there's a genuine concern about immigration levels and you could say it's a bit lower in the high-income areas, but it's still about 45% to 55 in the low-income areas. But that's not that far apart. It's still a pretty substantial group in both income postcode areas, if you like, saying, look, we think it's a bit high at the moment. Well, that's certainly the case. What we also found, and this is even more telling, is that when we asked people, do you think there should be a pause or cut in immigration until infrastructure catches up with demand, we found that in the poor suburbs, it was 77% agreeing with that proposition. And in the rich, we found 65%. Mm. So again, this is the consensus or the common ground that we're finding. And we didn't find that Australians are coming apart on these issues. No, it's a good point to make, actually. I remember, do you know, when I was a very new senator, so we're talking about 1985, 86, somewhere around there, and I went to a function for the Southeast Asian Women's Refugee Association and Mick Young, the former member for Port Adelaide, who was a Labor luminary, was speaking and I was very surprised that when he got up to speak, he recognised the members of parliament there and, and I was the only other one And I hadn't expected that from a person in government to a person in opposition. But, you know, you learn good things when you're a new person in opposition about how to behave when you're an old person in government. Anyway, that was the pleasant surprise. And then when he was talking about immigration, he made the point that if you're in favour of immigration, and I am, because I think we are an immigration country, that's what we are, that's the essence of us, then you will always keep it at levels with which the Australian community is happy. Because if you raise it to a point where the Australian community is not happy, you're in fact making them unhappy about a central part of ourselves, that we're an immigration country. And that's a big mistake. So, you know, I think that's really, really important to bear in mind. It's not racist to cut immigration. It's not opposed to immigration. It just says we have to keep it at levels that everyone's happy with. Look, I think that's immigration politics 101. I think sometimes, and don't get me wrong on this, I think sometimes people bring a moral perspective to the question when what they actually need to bring to it is what I think is called a statecraft perspective. And it's the point that you make. If the immigration program is to remain politically sustainable, 
it has to retain public support. Absolutely. And, and if it is going to retain public support, and this is what I think our polling finds, that these issues of congestion, these issues of social cohesion, that our polling is showing there is strong concern and strong support across the community, these issues need to be addressed. Mm. I'm talking with Jeremy Samet from the Centre for Independent Studies about immigration and whether we have to trim it back. You asked about settling migrants in regional areas and we're going to be talking soon with the Grattan Institute about the failure of some of those programs. It's not to say that you can't attract people there, but do you agree with this, that you can't get people to go there unless they can get a job? What's the point? What is the point? Look, I think that is right. In this report, we didn't go into how we should necessarily address... No, I understand that. The question we asked about whether people supported migrants being settled in regional areas, I think that was another indication that people are feeling these population pressures and want some form of relief. Now, I don't know about the workability of settling migrants in regional areas, but I think we do need to be cognisant that it definitely may not be a panacea to these issues in terms of ensuring that the immigration program is sustainable and it retains public support by effectively addressing the congestion issues that people seemingly want addressed. I'm sure that's right. Now, what about teaching values? Mm. I see that there's a big agreement amongst both the more wealthy people and less wealthy people about the need to teach values. I know you didn't research this, but I'm just wondering if you've got a feeling for why people feel Mm. that the migrants who come here don't share our values. Look, we found that at least 75% of people in both rich and poor suburbs agreed with taking a more formal approach to trying to integrate migrants by requiring them to learn English and requiring them to study a course about Australian values. Now, in terms of what I think is driving this, I think there is an obvious elephant in the room, which is concerns about Islamist terrorism. We live in an age of global Islamist terrorism and we are obviously not immune to that in Australia given the recent tragedies in Bourke Street. I also feel, and this might be more a policy issue than a reflection of public opinion, but I think this is part of the mix. I think it is that we've had a very, very large immigration intake for a number of years. I think that's meant that migrants are more visible on the one hand. It also means that when you have a larger intake, it's easier for migrants to remain within their ethnic group. And so when there's a larger intake and there's a larger community, there's sort of less need or less incentive to integrate and join in with the rest of the country. I also think the other factor here is that we live in a very, very different age than when we opened up our immigration program after World War II. In the days when my grandparents came to Australia, they really had no option but to fit in. They sort of literally burnt their boats. There was no travel home. There was no internet. There was no ease of communication. There was no satellite TV and all the things that people have now. So again, that's another factor that can allow people to sort of remain within their ethnic community rather than have to join in. So I think that all those factors are contributing to this desire. And we just remember here that what's really being reasserted here is the sort of common sense principle that's always underpinned our immigration program, which is that we expect migrants to share our values, to fit in and to participate fully in Australian society. Sure. Well, I agree with that. I just have the view that there's not many who come in who you could classify as not being in that position. And that few might be from countries where we are apprehensive 
yeah. that terrorists are coming here or fueling relatives here who were maybe even born here or been here for years with Islamic terrorism. That's the concern. I don't have a concern that many other groups don't share our values. Do you? No, I don't, but I think it is... I mean, give you a couple of examples. Sure. Both the Indian and Chinese migrants mm. come here. Gee, they work hard. The Chinese community work very hard yep. at helping their own community. Yep. They want the kids to go to school to take the opportunity yep. of being here and are, generally speaking, you know, good law-abiding citizens. So I'm a bit happy with our immigration program. I'm not happy with terrorists. Look, you make some really relevant points. And one thing I'm always conscious of when I talk about immigration issues is I remember a statement that I read many years ago which said that you can't invite people into your country and then insult them. And I'm aware that this could be seen as sort of punishing migrants by requiring to learn English and have these requirements about values. It could be seen as punishing migrants who come here with the classic migrant mindset of wanting to fit in, wanting to make a go of it. However, one of the most concerning aspects of our report was the question we asked about a non-discriminatory immigration policy. When we asked the question, should the government take the cultural and religious background of migrants into account, we found that in poor suburbs, 57% of respondents agreed with that compared to 40% in the rich suburbs. Now, 40% is still a very significant number, and I think this is reflecting those concerns about Islamist terrorism. Now, it would not be in our national interest to dispense with a non-discriminatory immigration policy. I also think it would be counterproductive in terms of trying to deal with the Muslim community in dealing with terrorism, again, because we would insult people and we would probably cause more problems by alienating more people by doing that. However, there obviously are these concerns about social cohesion and integration, and I think that is why we need to look at a more formal approach, and that's what our polling is also telling us, that people feel very strongly about the need for a more formal approach to try and promote integration and social cohesion. Mm. Do you know, I remember when the Howard government first spoke about, you know, Australian values and the discussions. I'm a bit apprehensive about it myself simply because I think I know what they are, but I'm not sure how you put them in a questionnaire. And I'm also a bit suspicious about questionnaires. People pretty soon learn what the questions are and what they'll say in an answer. But, for example, I don't see why people coming here ought to know about cricket. <laughs> I watch the cricket every now mm. and then when I've got nothing else to do. Yeah. So if you want to talk about value, for me, it has to be essential values. Yeah. I you know, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, girls being treated equally, yeah. those sorts of things. But that list is pretty short. I think what you're putting your finger on is that it's sometimes hard for us to go to the places that we want to do because it's sometimes seen as politically correct to assume that people from different cultures don't agree with us about, you know, the rights of women or rule of law or religious freedom or all, all those sorts of issues. So in a sense, the sort of political correctness that surrounds the whole issue prevents us from actually dealing with the problem. The other issue that we face is that most Australians don't actually have a strong sense of our civic culture. I remember the great historian John Hurst, he was saying that he was never surprised by that in a country where, you know, our heroes are a cricket yeah. or a horse and a bush ranger. So there is a, a little bit of a vacuum there in terms of our own knowledge of, of our civic values and our political traditions. But the point remains that 
if you are bringing in migrants who have got values antithetical to those key values, we need to address that if we are going to promote no, I, I, integration look, I, and social I, cohesion. Yeah, I agree with that. I couldn't not agree with it. But when you say, you know, sometimes we have to check our own values, I just look at one of the questions about the rule of law, and that is innocent to proven guilty. And I don't see through our normal media and through social mm. media that many people still believe that. I mean, I see TV shows showing up at people's houses saying, you know, did you murder so-and-so? And telling the world that they think this person was a murderer or pedophile or whatever, as terrible as those things are, the decision as to whether you have perpetrated those evils or not mm. is one for the courts and not for the media. And we don't seem to get that at the moment. Well, that's probably a broader cultural discussion. I would agree with you in principle. But I think there definitely are mechanisms that we could use to make sure that migrants are fully aware of the key values that yeah. make Australia the country that it is, has been, and we hope always will be. Yeah. Can we spend a few minutes on English language? We have primarily, as you know, a skilled migration program. We have different aspects. We have a humanitarian program under which people can come who don't necessarily speak English, but that's a separate program. Largely, English is a requirement. Now, it's a requirement for the person who comes in as the skilled worker, not for their partner and kids. Mm. So I'm just wondering where all these people are coming from that other Australians believe don't speak English. Well, I think part of it is we have a large number of international students and there has been a lot of concern within the university sector about the substandard performance of international students and often the pressure just to pass them anyway because, unfortunately, our universities have become addicted to the international student market and that is part of their business model. If I can be slightly cheeky, I sometimes wonder if we're exporting higher education or whether we're running some sort of immigration racket. I'll leave that to people who may know more about that. But I think it's those sort of concerns. And again, in terms of why we need a more formal approach to these things, it goes back to the central point, which is that immigration program has to have the public's confidence. And for a range of reasons, I think there is a lack of confidence in what we're currently doing. And there are legitimate concerns about these issues of social cohesion and sure, integration. I, I don't disagree with that. Well, Jeremy Samet from the Centre for Independent Studies, it's been a pleasure. I think we've confirmed our not prejudices, but intuitive thoughts about immigration. There is a concern and it has to be addressed. Thanks, Amanda. Ah, the soapbox. There's just too many people out there looking for a way to make themselves look or feel like a good person. They do this by associating themselves with an issue or a group and the ones I'm talking about, rather than go and do anything useful for others, simply pronounce to the world what others ought to do. Yes, 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 of course, we all need to speak up when fellow humans are in a difficult spot, are being attacked or unfairly disadvantaged. But speaking up costs nothing not particularly meritorious, it should be the baseline condition of being human, that you speak up for others. What is impressive are those people who actually do something, 
put in some time and effort to make something better, where that time and effort involves real time and real effort, not just bagging out others. Well-intentioned windbags are just that, windbags. Of course, Chinese were some of the earliest migrants here in the Gold Rush days. They've been a great migrant cohort. But what about people who come here to study high-tech defence stuff and go back to China? And now to China. It's always there and it's getting bigger. And there are security questions that we ask about China. Recently, Aspie produced a paper, Picking Flowers, Making Honey. It's an expression used by a very senior person in China. And we need to find out what that means as it relates to our security. And to do that, we're going to talk to Alex Josky. He's a research fellow at the International Cyber Policy Centre at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Alex Josky, welcome to CounterPoint. Good to be here. So the Chinese military are out there cooperating with everyone, aren't they, all around the world? Yeah, that's right. We've really seen quite an unexpected rise in the Chinese military's collaboration with universities outside of China. And it's really quite marked in Australia. But across the world, we've probably seen about 2,500 Chinese military scientists and engineers go overseas to study advanced technologies and then go back to China to, in the PLA's words, pick flowers to make honey. So they take something back with them, don't they? Some understanding about, even if it's not the exact technology, it's an understanding of where we are, where we're headed, how far we have progressed down a particular path. Now, all this collaboration, it seems to have a focus, doesn't it, on the Five Eyes countries? I think it's a focus more generally on countries that are technologically advanced and that encompasses the Five Eyes countries in particular. Mm-hmm. So the the top countries around the world for this collaboration with the Chinese military are the US, the UK, Canada, Australia, and Germany. So it really is concentrated in these countries that share intelligence and share a lot of military technology, but are also on the cutting edge of scientific research. Mm. In the paper, you show that the number of peer-reviewed articles co-authored by People's Liberation Army scientists with overseas scientists between 2006 and 2017, went from 112 in 2006 up to 734 in 2017. It's a reasonable jump, isn't it? It's really quite marked, you know, a sevenfold increase. And it's something that simply hasn't been discussed sort of by the broader public to date. And that's why I've put out this paper to try to spark a discussion to really get people to think about You know, the Chinese military is sending so many scientists overseas and engaging in so much collaboration with our universities. And and we haven't yet talked about whether that's in our national interest or whether it raises security concerns. Now, the University of New South Wales and the Australian National University are in the top 10 for this cooperation with PLA scientists. But the University of New South Wales, I understand their Deputy Vice-Chancellor, is quite confident that all their intellectual property is pretty safe. I think that's probably hard to say at this point, but I think the real concerns raised by UNSW's collaboration with the Chinese military, uh, primarily in the fact that they're training a generation of Chinese military scientists in advanced areas of technology like navigation systems, unmanned aircraft and supercomputers. So it's not just these questions of is technology being stolen, but 
simply the contribution that's being made mm-hmm. to the military technology of China is, is concerning in itself. Mm. So you've done this research and brought together the information about, well, what's happening internationally and a good deal about what's happening in Australia. Prior to that, do you think the universities are talking to each other and mapping so that we all understand what sort of cooperation from Australia we have with the PLA at the very high-tech level in universities? I'm not really sure how much discussion is happening inside Australian universities about this. I'm sure they're trying to kind of respond to media queries, but it's not clear whether they've actually come together and tried to fully assess the extent of collaboration with the Chinese military on their campuses. And I don't think they've come together to work out specific responses to it. In my research, I tried to meet with the Australian National University about my research into Chinese mm. military collaboration, but couldn't secure a meeting and was referred to the Group of Eight, the representative body for Australia's top eight universities, which also didn't have the time to meet with me. So I think this really reflects a lack of willingness by a lot of universities to come out publicly and openly and actually discuss these issues. Mm. Well, that's an important issue. And if they haven't decided to meet amongst themselves and have a discussion about it, I don't think it'll be too long before they have to, before the public demand that they do. I mean, just where some of these scientists go as visiting scholars is interesting, but where do they come from, these scientists? What sort of institutions are they therefore going back to? The Chinese military has quite a substantial network of its own universities and research institutes across China. And the main source of these scientists coming to study in places like ANU and UNSW is called the National University of Defence Technology, which is the Chinese military's top science and technology university. But we've also seen people come from, for example, the Chinese military's Information Engineering University, which conducts cyber attacks and trains signals intelligence officers. We've seen people go overseas from places like Northwestern Institute of Nuclear Technology, which forms part of China's nuclear program. So they really come from quite a wide range of Chinese military institutions doing things like hypersonic missiles, supercomputer technology, intelligence gathering, and even nuclear weapons. Mm. I'm talking with Alex Josky. He's a research fellow at ASPE, and in particular, the International Cyber Policy Centre. We're talking about the Chinese coming here to pick flowers and going home and making honey. And we've read in plenty of places, really, that the Chinese do expect loyalty to China from people to travel abroad. I don't feel too badly about that because, you know, we expect our citizens to be loyal to us, don't we? Put Australia sort of first. But in any event, that does raise concerns when you have so many scientists coming to Australia from these sorts of places and then returning home. Are you aware of whether any of our intelligence agencies are focusing on this aspect of Chinese involvement in Australia? No, it's not clear because our intelligence agencies aren't really public about what kind of work they're doing. But I think we can see from the current review of the Defence Trade Controls Act, Defence's submission to it seem to be driven by serious concerns about technology transfer to China. It wasn't named, but it was likely a key driver in the submission to the Defence Trade Controls Act. So I think there is at least interest in government 
in trying to think about these problems. With the question of the loyalty of these scientists, the Chinese military seems careful to only send Chinese Communist Party members overseas who are then required to report back on their thoughts while they're overseas and maintain links back to the Chinese military and abide by disciplined standards. And these all contribute to making sure that they all return to China once they've finished their studies overseas. Mm. The National University of Defence Technology even claims that 100% of the students it's sent overseas have come back to China on time. Mm. Well, as a former immigration minister, I can tell you there are a number of ways you can get people to go back on time, but let's not get into that. Let's look at a case study of Hu Xiaosheng that might give an example to all of us how people go overseas and study, might be looking at wind energy research, but what's the story of Hu Xiaosheng? So Hu Xiaosheng did his PhD at a place called the Rocket Force Engineering University in China, which specialises in the development of missiles for the Chinese military. But in around, I think, if I remember correctly, 2014, he went to Norway, funded by a Norwegian government wind energy research grant. And while he was in Norway, however, he claimed to be from a place called the Sian Research Institute of High Technology, which seems to just be a cover for the Rocket Force Engineering University. And when he was in Norway, he was writing not about wind energy, but about hypersonic aircraft. And hypersonic aircraft and missiles is an area where China and the US are really competing for dominance. It's a sort of a, a developing technology that will probably change the landscape of warfare because it would allow countries to send missiles at incredible speeds right across the globe. Five times the speed of sound. That's right, over five Gee. times. And after spending about a year or two in Norway, it seems like the Norwegian authorities cottoned on to what was going on not long before he was supposed to go back to China anyway and ended up expelling him from the country. Mm, well, there's one example at least. Well, I have to say this is a very, very interesting paper and it's an interesting topic. I mean, in Australia we talk, as you know, about Chinese people coming to buy apartments and pushing the price of houses up and, you know, so many Chinese being here and some people worry about they're buying agricultural land. It doesn't worry me. I, I like... Chinese people, to extent that these days that we're allowed to have ethnic preferences, I think the Chinese have a great sense of humour and are lovely people to mix with. But nonetheless, we do have to watch our own national security and I don't think this aspect is something that we've had much of a public discussion about. So Alex Josky from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, in particular the International Cyber Policy Centre, thanks for joining us. Thank you. If we're watching what China does in the Pacific, we need to be careful what we do there. We talk about the Indo-Pacific and the Pacific quite a bit, important area to us. And so is our aid program important, and our trade programs. Recently there was an article in Chatham House about Canberra and Wellington's supposed misguided policies towards Pacific Island economies. And what the article says is that those policies will undermine their relationships and open the region to further influence from China. So we just had to speak to the author of that article, who's Cleo Pascal, an Associate Fellow, Energy, Environment and Resources in the Department of Asia-Pacific Program at Chatham House. Cleo Pascal, welcome to CounterPoint. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. 
Now, how does it happen that a Canadian in the United Kingdom is interested in doing a piece on Australia and New Zealand's trade relations with Pacific Island nations? Well, we're particularly concerned right now about strategic balance in the Indo-Pacific and look at China very closely and are particularly concerned about areas where China seems to be making very rapid gains, which is what we've seen across the Pacific, especially in the last 10 years and especially in Pacific Island Forum countries. So in order to kind of figure out what China is doing, how it's doing it, and how it's been successful, we have to break down into the region itself to figure out where those openings have been created. And unfortunately, I think some of them have been created by the nature of the relationship between the Pacific Island Forum Island countries and Australia and New Zealand. Mm. There's wildly different economies in the Pacific, aren't there? That's correct, yeah. So if you look at a country like... Papua New Guinea, it does billions of dollars worth of exports in oil and gas. If you look at a country like Tonga or Samoa, their exports might be in the tens of millions of agricultural commodities. They're very, very different sorts of economies. What they have in common is very thin resources for the government. So the government's run on very tight, very small budgets usually, but that's supplemented by the fact that people within the country tend to have a lot of social capital. So there's customarily held land, somebody in the family will be a farmer, that food will be distributed throughout the family. So even though the governments can't provide social welfare networks, the social capital within the country can try to ensure that there's food security, that everybody has a place to live, and there's a, a basic standard of living provided, even though it's not the sort of GDP-linked economic structure that we would be more familiar with in Western-style economies. Mm. Now, as I understand it, your criticism goes to PACER Plus, and it is in one part, essentially, that these countries would have free access to Australia and New Zealand anyway. So giving Australia and New Zealand access to them isn't actually necessarily a benefit to them, and that poses risks. Is that right? Right. So the PACER Plus free trade agreement is a trade agreement that has been pushed mostly by Canberra and Wellington with the Pacific Island forum countries. And the idea is exactly, as you said, the forum countries already have tariff-free and quota-free access into Australia and New Zealand markets. What PACER Plus is designed to do is to make the Pacific Island economies drop their tariffs for the importation of Australian and New Zealand goods, among other things. Now, the problem there is that would make it very difficult, for example, for a Tongan dairy to start up and compete with a New Zealand dairy, which can afford to dump cheap product into Tonga until it wipes out their infant industries, that sort of thing. And it also means, you know, that dumping perhaps food that is not appropriate, those kind of very fatty things, very salty, very unhealthy things that create health issues, are much easier to dump. Bearing in yeah, mind, sure. there are anti-dumping rules. Well, this drops the tariffs. So, for example, the Prime Minister of Tonga recently wanted to try to put in place financial penalties for unhealthy foods so that unhealthy yeah. foods become more expensive. But like local the sugar tax that's being talked about all over the world. That's right. But local fish becomes cheaper, you know, mm -hmm. relative to the expensive imported goods. The PACER plus trade deal makes it very difficult to put in place the sort of tariffs that would protect local healthier food sector development. 
So it makes it much more difficult to compete, especially when you combine it with higher energy costs, which mean a higher production and food refining costs in the Pacific Islands as mm. well at the same time. Although to be fair, look, I'm not a specialist in this area, but I can see why a trade deal makes it hard to protect your local stuff, but not harder to implement restrictions that promote fresher, healthier food. Making it local that is the problem, you know, protecting your own stuff as opposed to putting an extra tax on unhealthy stuff. Yeah, absolutely right. However, what tends to happen is the unhealthy food tends to be cheaper because it's mass produced in another location and it's poor quality. So it's cheaper to buy, you know, two litres of Coke than it is to buy two litres of orange juice, fresh orange juice, for example. So it's just the way that food is currently being produced. But from my perspective, which is a strategic perspective, you know, this is a pretty standard neoliberal economic trade deal, which a lot of countries do to a lot of other countries if they have the power to do it. So, you know, there's no surprise here. My specific concern is a strategic concern, which is that in the process of trying to shift these economies from these kind of communal social capital-based economies to individual financial capital-based economies, what that does is it'll force things like privatization of land and a whole bunch of other things, which I think the Australian and the New Zealand business communities think will benefit them because they will be the ones that will come in with enough capital to develop those markets. What I'm concerned about is that actually it'll be Chinese-backed companies, possibly based in Australia and New Zealand, but funded out of Beijing, that will take advantage of those newly opened economic tracks into the Pacific to do things like gain access to critical infrastructure like ports and telecoms. Mm. So the discussion we just had about trade deals, that's been going on for decades. Everybody knows those parameters. That is what it is. But from a strictly strategic perspective, I think that there's a lot to be concerned about in Pacer Plus that might dramatically shift the way that these countries can provide security and prosperity to their people and open much more to Chinese influence. Mm. I'm talking with Cleo Pascal from Chatham House in the United Kingdom about Australia and New Zealand's trade relationship with Pacific Island nations. Is it fair to say that it's just not realistic to imagine that these economies can stay as they are and that well, put it this way, one wise man at one end of the table, or wise woman, says, look, in the end, these economies are going to have to be brought into the world economy. And the sooner that happens, the sooner they can develop and grow. Now, yes, they might need foreign investment, and there's a challenge for whether that's Chinese or Australian or New Zealand or United States or Canada, but they are going to have to be a part of the global economy. They cannot survive otherwise. What, what do you say to that? So our definition of the global economy is not actually global. If you look at an economy like India's economy, that wouldn't fall into the parameters of a description of a typical Western economy. Mm. And I would postulate that it would be better for the security of the region if the relationship between Australia and New Zealand and its Pacific partners was mm. more like the relationship between the U.S. and India, where the U.S. acknowledges India needs to be stable in order to be an effective strategic ally. And so it's not going to put the sort of economic pressure on it that might be internally disruptive and create urbanization, dislocation, and all the sort of things that we're going to end up seeing in the Pacific if Pacer Plus gets pushed through. So saying that, okay, you're not an economy that's a mirror of our economy, you're slightly different, you don't have the social welfare network, so busting open the economy to a liberal model will create 
food insecurity, unemployment, social unrest, and a really unstable environment that is ripe for somebody like China to come in and say, all right, you've got problems because you're not getting tariffs through Pacer Plus. We'll give you a massive loan in order to bail you out. And at the same time, we'll help you create domestic security and set up policing partnerships and all sorts of things like that. So, you know, I think that there really needs to be a look at other models, other relationship models between partners that do provide security and prosperity for the region in the way that I know Australia would like to provide to its Five Eyes partners in the region. Currently, it's not working. And we've seen it all over the region. And, you know, with Xi arriving in Port Moresby for APEC and all the Chinese flags waving all over the region, that's not a great thing for anybody. So we need to figure out ways of changing our relationship with the Pacific that creates an environment within the Pacific where there's true prosperity and security, and that may not be following the old economic models for the sake of very narrow economic interests within Australia and New Zealand. Mm. Oh, look, I don't mean to demean the size of the trade opportunities for Australian companies in the Pacific, but you know, I wouldn't have thought it was that great. I mean, it's not a huge market, is it? It's not like getting no. access to the Chinese market or the Indian market. That's right. So why not just let them develop in a way that's going to create stability within their countries instead of trying to squeeze out, you know, an extra million here or there, you know, and in the process of squeezing out that million here or there, which isn't a lot to the Australian economy, you're taking away much needed funds for the governments of the region that can help provide security and keep them out of a Chinese debt trap. Now, what do you say to all the associated parts of PESA Plus? You know, the student exchanges, 2,500 or so Australian and New Zealand students studying in the region, many from the Pacific studying in reverse, flows of seasonal workers who want to work in Australia and New Zealand. The seasonal workers are not part of PACER Plus. There's yeah, no but it, it's so, not directly tied, I understand that, but it's... Yeah, you know. and anything that is beneficial to the region like that, which is outside of PACER Plus, great, develop it outside of PACER Plus. You don't need PACER Plus to develop it. And in fact, Australia and New Zealand have been using access to seasonal workers scheme as a cudgel to try to force Pacific Island countries into signing PACER Plus, even though they're unrelated deals. And the offshoot of that, what you've seen is that countries have become very resentful of that sort of perceived bullying. So, you know, PNG hasn't signed PACER Plus, Fiji hasn't signed PACER Plus, none of the U.S. freely associated states have signed PACER Plus. The Cook Islands signed and has now said it's not going to ratify PACER Plus. So it's creating a very bad impression in the region of Australian and New Zealand engagement at the very time that there is this desire on the part of both of those governments to create a new sort of relationship with the Pacific, the step up in the case of Australia and the reset in the case of New Zealand. So it's extremely counterproductive, I think to try to push these old models of engagement, which have very little economic benefit and a lot of potential security downside and a lot of perception downside at this particular time. Well, that's certainly a counterpoint. And as you know, Cleo Pascal, this program is called Counterpoint. And I thank you very much for joining us and providing that counterpoint. Great pleasure. Thank you. Chinese make great noodles. Oh, a bowl of vegetable wonton soup. It's a bug beater in winter for sure. But, you know, they make noodles. Not as many pasta shapes as the Italians. And who knew pasta shapes would be great metaphors to assist scientists to describe all sorts of things. Don't you know that?
Stars colliding must be fabulous to see through a giant telescope. I haven't even got a home telescope. I might get one, because I think looking at the stars would be pretty good. Neutron stars are apparently about the size of a substantial city. But just a teaspoon, a teaspoon of the material inside has the equivalent mass of a small mountain on Earth. Wow. What must that be like? To discuss how scientists explain what the matter inside these stars is like, I'm joined by Marina Corinne. She's written a terrific article for The Atlantic called The Pasta in Our Stars. We all understand pasta shapes, and scientists have cottoned on and started to use that to describe the content of these stars. Marina Corinne, writer for The Atlantic, welcome to Counterpoint. Thank you for having me. Marina, are you a cook? Oh, I am trying to be every day, but I wouldn't say I'm a great cook. Ah, but are you fussy about your pasta shapes in cooking? <laughs> I am not. I will accept pasta in any forms. What about oh, you? Well, I think I will accept pasta in any form. I'm a little bit fussy, but there are some sauces that do not go with a very, very thin tubular pasta, but some that go really well. Anyway, let's get on to this business. Tell us about neutron stars and why scientists have come to use pasta shapes to describe their contents. Right. Well, neutron stars, they are not like the star that is in our own solar system, like the sun. They are pretty weird objects, and their stories begin when another star grows old and dies. So when that giant star has burned through all of the fuel that it had throughout its lifetime to make it shine, the core of that star collapses under its own weight, and it becomes so extremely dense. And it's no longer a star. It's more just like a leftover core of the star. And that is what a neutron star is. It's like you said, it's the size of a big city, but it's so incredibly dense that it's unlike anything we can really fathom. And while astronomers can observe these types of stars from afar. They can see the effects that they have on, you know, their nearby surroundings. They can see that they're spinning rapidly and they're flashing these beams of lights all across space like a lighthouse. They don't exactly know what's inside of the stars. They know that Mm -hmm. it's an extremely dense environment, but they don't know what's in it. And so they try to predict it. They try to use theoretical models to figure that out. And one framework they've turned to is, you know, they decided to compare what's inside of these neutron stars to pasta shapes, which is very relatable. Fair enough. Well, apparently there's complicated layers within a neutron star. Is that what provides the different opportunity for shape descriptions? Yes, yes. So I think the best way to explain this is to kind of take you on a little tour of the layers of the neutron star. Please, uh, please. Starting from the top down. Yeah, fun little journey. So at the very top of a neutron star, there's this thin, rigid crust that's mostly made of iron. And I should have paid more attention in chemistry class, but, you know, don't let what's coming next scare you. But here in this outer layer, there's nuclei, and that's the protons and neutrons that are found at the center of an atom. And these nuclei are spherical in shape in this layer. They look like little blobs. And so astrophysicists, you know, look at this and they think, huh, these blobs kind of look like gnocchi. So they Mm. decided to call them gnocchi. Good dish, gnocchi. (laughs) 
And as you descend deeper in a neutron star, the pressure of gravity increases. That's what makes these stars so dense because gravity is pretty wild in there. And under this crush of gravity, under the force of gravity, the neutrons and the protons that I mentioned earlier, they bend the material that's there into more shapes. And the nuclei get squeezed together. You know, they go from going these blobs that look like gnocchi into these long tubes that actually look a bit more like spaghetti. So what's your favourite spaghetti? Are there different types of spaghetti? Yes, there are quite a lot of different types of spaghetti, (laughs) different thicknesses. And some are tubular and some are solid, Mm, like vermicelli or something. What's your favourite sauce on spaghetti? I think it would have to be penne vodka. Creamy sauces more than marinara's. Mmm. Penne vodka. Does that have vodka in the cream? I hope so. I hope that it's not false advertising. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Now what happens after the spaghetti? Okay. So after the spaghetti... You go further down, you descend deeper into the neutron star, and this nuclear material starts to flatten out into sheets. And that's where you get the lasagna description. They start to look Mm. like lasagna. It's not over yet. You keep going down even further, and then something really weird happens, even weirder than what we've been talking about. The neutrons, you know, this far down, they start to escape the nuclei, they sprint away from the protons that they once shared a home with in these nuclei. Yeah. produce these weird cylindrical voids in the nuclear material. And it's kind of like opposite day. You know, they're cylindrical, but they're holes. So scientists call them anti-spaghetti, which does not... Unbelievable, isn't it? They get a PhD (laughs) and they're using terms like gnocchi, pasta, anti-spaghetti. And further on, apparently, we come to the anti-gnocchi. Yes, yes. Further on, gravity's still increasing, and the voids morph into blob-like shapes. They return to those spherical shapes that we saw at the top of the neutron star. But they're holes, so they are anti-gnocchi. And then comes the big secret, because unless something's happened recently, nobody's really sure what comes after that. Right, right. When you're talking about the core, the very, very core of a neutron star, you know, pasta can't help you there anymore. I can't help scientists there anymore. They have no idea what's really going on there. They suspect that the nuclear matter here exists in some kind of state that can't be recreated in laboratories on Earth. And, you know, right now they're just, they have hypotheticals of what might be happening there, but otherwise no established science, nothing solid about what's truly going on at the heart of these stars. Mm. And people are, what, guessing or postulating that the material might be the strongest material in the universe. Right, yes. It is not at all like the pasta we have here on Earth. I talked to a couple of astrophysicists in the United States, and their job is to study neutron stars. And they ran a bunch of computer simulations based on what they do know about you know, what could be going on inside. And in these simulations, they stretched and distorted and warped the nuclear material that they think exists inside of these stars in all kinds of ways. And they found that whatever they did, you know, this material didn't really break apart. It remained very stiff. And they think that's because this environment is just extremely dense and that these shapes that I've been talking about are just so unusual that together they managed to remain a very rigid, they just remain really stiff. It's a really tough material. I'm glad real pasta is not like that because I'd want to eat that pasta. (laughs) No, Italians like it al dente, but not that al dente. (laughs) Definitely not. Now, apparently, recently, 
astronomers detected some what they describe as exciting signatures from the same source in the galaxy. Can you tell me about that? Oh, sure, Ian. That's pretty exciting, and it, you don't have to know anything about the inside of neutron stars to hear about this. This is about what's happening on the outside, what their behaviors are. So last year, astronomers detected for the first time, like you said, these signatures, and they were coming from a galaxy about 130 million light years from Earth, an unfathomable distance, very hard to imagine, but very far away. And what happened in this distant galaxy is that two neutron stars actually collided into each other. And when that happens, the impact is so powerful that the waves that kind of ripple out of this collision, they actually bend and stretch and warp the very fabric of the universe. You know, this collision also emits just a ton of radiation. And these are things that we can somehow miraculously detect with very powerful technology on Earth. And that's what they picked up. It's fantastic, isn't it, that we can figure out something, unless someone's made a big mistake, what was happening 130 million light years from Earth. Oh, it's absolutely wild. Mm. Did you like that song, Ground Control to Major Tom? Yes, is that David Bowie? Space well, Odyssey. 130 million light years away, it wouldn't be much use, would it? So no, no, no. try and have that but conversation. But it comes in handy here, and that's maybe what matters more. <laughs> that's probably true. That's probably true. Marina Karen, staff writer for The Atlantic, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Ground control to Major Tom. Well, that's it for this week. If you've got a comment to make or an idea to put forward, just go to abc.net.au forward slash Radio National and follow the prompts to Counterpoint and give us your message. Thanks for joining me. Ciao, ciao. Ground control to major tongues. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.